Okay, good evening. Um, welcome to the 134th session of the Proceedings of the Aristotelian Society and the 125th anniversary of the publication of the Proceedings. So this is a special anniversary year for the Society. My name is Mary McGinn and um, my term as the 104th president um, comes to an end this evening. I believe the mystical moment of transference is when my successor starts to speak. Um, I'm very pleased, um, as my final duty as president, to introduce my successor, Professor Sarah Brodie. Um, professor Brodie is Professor of Moral Philosophy um, at, and Wardlow Professor at St Andrews. Before going to St Andrews, she taught at the universities of Edinburgh, Texas at Austin, Yale, Rutgers and Princeton. She's a specialist um, in classical philosophy, but has interests in both ancient and modern metaphysics and ethics. She's a fellow of the British Academy, of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, and of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She's published numerous articles on ancient philosophy, both on Aristotle and books on Aristotle's physics and ethics, and a commentary on the Nicomachean ethics. Her paper this evening, is entitled Actual Instead. So I'd like you to give a warm welcome to Professor Brodie. Thank you, Mari. <clears throat> and um, I want to thank the Society for the, the honour of choosing me as president for this year, or this session, um, and also for giving me the opportunity to deliver this paper. It does seem that determinism continues to exert a grip on our philosophical imagination. Witness the unremitting stream of publications on compatibilism. Compatibilism, according to current usage, is the thesis that moral responsibility and free will, or one or other of these if, they're not if they don't necessarily hang together, are not excluded by determinism. Defenders of compatibilism and their opponents on whichever side, and also interested agnostics, would presumably not debate this question unless they assume that determinism, at any, anyway at the outset of the discussion, deserves to be taken somewhat seriously. This is an assumption which this paper is in part intended to test. The paper takes issue with a kind of compatibilism, a kind of compatibilism, but not the well-known kind. The target, at least to begin with, is the assumption that determinism poses no threat to a common and quite possibly indispensable use of counterfactual conditionals. This compatibilist assumption is logically more basic than the debate about determinism vis-a-vis -vis free will and moral responsibility. Freedom and responsibility relate to actions, and action or agency is normally a matter of bringing it about that things are different from how they would have been if the agent had not so acted. Thus, our understanding of action rests on counterfactual conditionals. I'm going to argue that an ordinary practice of ours with counterfactuals 
assumes, in effect, that determinism is not a real epistemic option. The thesis is not that this practice of ours entails the false, falsehood of determinism, but more weakly, that it excludes treating it as a sensible or reasonable position, one that we have to consider as a serious contender. More fully, the proposal is that so far as we regard ourselves as reasonable in forming certain counterfactual judgments, to that extent we treat determinism as out of the question or not up for rational consideration. Now I get to the um, um, what I think classicists call the, the captatio benevolentiae. This topic that is begging for leniency. Um, this topic falls within territory where deep and highly technical expertise holds sway. Uh, expertise in the study of conditionals and of how counterfactuals relate to causal statements. I have learned from some of this work but I remain, even so, an amateur in that direction. Yes, it does take a fool to rush into precincts where angels fear to tread, but for any proverb, there is usually another which preaches the opposite message. And this case is no exception. I won't bore you with these opposite proverbs. Um, I can only hope that what follows will, fa will fall somewhere on the border between temerity and timidity. Okay, now amongst the preliminaries, which is this section of the paper, um, I quickly outline, or in the printed, or the already draft printed version, the kind of determinism that's in question. Now I'm just going to say that this is, as it were, standard, standard determinism. It doesn't worry about quantum theory. Um, it, it does not accept uh, supervenience <coughs> about laws of nature. Um, it's the kind of determinism that um, is at the center of most arguments and discussions of that theory, of that kind of theory. Uh, for example, it's the kind of determinism that's at the center of the consequence argument and its critics. A few more words perhaps are necessary about the counterfactual conditionals that are at issue here. Uh, these are ones that assume causation running from one particular actual event to another, and hence a causal nexus between the counterfactual antecedent and the counterfactual consequent. Furthermore, uh, the cases I have in mind are not simply subjunctive conditionals, but ones whose meaning implies or indicates in some way that what the subordinate clauses represent is not the case. Thus, they are literally counterfactual. This is by contrast with subjunctive conditionals that leave this open, while possibly suggesting that what is represented is only a remote possibility. In addition, the counterfactuals in question refer to the past. They say what would have happened or obtained at a past time if something which actually happened or obtained then, or a bit earlier, had not. Although there may also be a focus on the difference that this makes for the present state of things. Furthermore, these counterfactuals have to do with cases where something practical is at stake. 
where the difference between the actual and the counterfactual course of events amounts to a difference of harm and benefit, loss and gain. Uh, the cases that I'm interested in here are not just cases of intentional agency, that is, counterfactuals, uh, as it were, based on what somebody, what would have been the case if somebody hadn't done something or had done something different. Um, I'm also interested in cases where what happens or what didn't happen um, is not due to human choice or under human control. What's common to the cases that I'm interested in is that they're ones where we not only talk and think or think about how things would have been if something that happened hadn't or if something that didn't happen had, but we also and thereby find it very natural to compare actual and counterfactual outcomes in terms of loss and gain, thinking how someone would have fared better or worse if what happened hadn't happened, that is, if some contrary outcome had been actual instead. So quickly, um, here are some scenarios just for illustration. So the one, first, first scenario is what I call the party one. We say, if it hadn't been for the storm, we'd have held the children's party out of doors and it would have been a lot more fun for them than it actually was. Than actually it was. What a pity about the storm. Second scenario or example, house fire. At 2 a.m., 2 a.m., a neighbor smells smoke next door, immediately phones the fire brigade, which comes at once. The story ends with a rescue just in time. Later we say, if he or she hadn't noticed and acted at once, the people sleeping inside would have died that night one way or another. They were lucky that the neighbour was awake and alert. Third one, after carefully studying the situation, I move a large investment out of one financial entity into another. A few days later, things have turned out as I thought they very well might, and I'm saying to myself or to others, what a good thing I followed my hunch and switched when I did, otherwise I'd now be holding a bunch of shares worth a quarter of what I paid for them. In ordinary life, we often judge that counterfactuals like these are true or well-founded and correct, and I'm going to assume that we're often right about this. So that's the sort of preliminary part of the paper. Second section is called First Step, and although what I say in it may be totally obvious, I want to try to say it relatively carefully because it is, as it were, the basis for everything that follows. It's a familiar point that accepting a counterfactual conditional depends on holding fixed, quote, holding fixed certain features of the actual situation. That is, we take it that the situation envisaged in the counterfactual antecedent has background features in common with the actual situation. It is equally familiar that our willingness to treat the conditional as true or well-founded rather than not depends on which background features we hold fixed. The conditional incorporates or is qualified by a Catery's Paribus clause, and it all depends on what we include under the other things that are said to be equal. 
Now, my first step is that in the examples above, those three examples, we don't just choose to hold it fixed that the background of the counterfactual situation was the same as in the actual one, as if this were up to us, and as if we could hold fixed something different if we wanted to. Rather, it is as if we are factually confronted with the same background in both scenarios. Instead of its being merely our hypothesis or supposition or optional assumption that the actual background features also belong to the counterfactual situation, we non-optionally presuppose or by implication <coughs> assert that they are or were part of it. The phrase Cateri's Paribus makes life difficult by being ambiguous. It can be meant hypothetically, amounting to let's suppose that the other things uh, were the same, or it can be meant categorically, amounting to it's a non-optional, uh, in brackets, a, a given, it's a non-optional given that the other things were the same. The first step of the paper consists just in underlining that in our examples, the categorical use is operative. Now, the examples, of course, present conditionals whose antecedents and consequences are, of course, by definition, not categorical. But is it so clear that there is, in fact, something categorical in the vicinity? It may seem that there isn't, even when we add more detail about the, the background. Thus, we might fill out the house fire example by saying, last night, if the neighbour hadn't noticed, etc., the people would have died, given that they would have been sleeping heavily, just as they were in the actual situation. And here, the background condition of their sleeping heavily is phrased in what appears to be the subjunctive, it figures as what would have obtained. We can, however, rephrase this in the past indicative as last night, given that the people were, were all sleeping heavily, they'd have died if the neighbour hadn't noticed, etc. As far as I can see, this change imports no addition or loss of meaning. It also seems perfectly legitimate to say since instead of given that here, and that yields last night, since the people were all sleeping heavily, they'd have died if, etc. With since, the indicative and categorical status of the clause about sleeping is even more obvious. The sleeping and other circumstances were the, were the basis of a causal connection running from the purely suppositional because counterfactual non-intervention of the neighbour to the purely suppositional because counterfactual death of the people in the house. But it is the actual, not merely suppositional sleeping and so forth that was this causal basis. Similarly, in the most famous example, the actual dryness of this dry match is, with other factors, of course, the causal basis of the, of the matches igniting were it to be struck, even if it never is struck and never does ignite. We rightly say, in view of this match's actual state, that if it was struck, it would light. 
And this is different from saying um, that if it was struck, then on the supposition of its being dry, as well as being struck, it would light. The apparent subjunctivity in one of my formulations above of the clause, given that they would have been sleeping heavily, may suggest that we're dealing with a supposition here rather than with something categorical. There are, however, ways of explaining away the appearance of subjunctivity. One is to think of the verb as grammatically attracted into the mood of the undeniably subjunctive clause if the neighbour hadn't noticed, and of course also the counterfactual consequence of that clause. Another way of explaining away the appearance of subjunctivity is to identify they would have been sleeping as in fact the past indicative of they will have been sleeping with the prospective use of the latter legitimating retrospective use of the former. That's to say, the counterfactual conditionals we're concerned with can be viewed as past tense or retrospective updates of previously relevant future-oriented conditionals. Thus, from a supposed earlier perspective on the house fire, we observe, we observe the people heavily sleeping we note the half-extinguished cigarette under the bed, as well as other relevant conditions, and we ask from our position as um, as uh, impotent observer, we ask, will an outsider notice, will help come in time? If yes, they will escape death. If no, they will perish. We take it from that perspective that whether the answer is yes or no, the factors mentioned, namely sleeping human beings, smouldering cigarette, flammable materials lying around, the laws of nature, are the same and are going to continue and are going to continue the same either way until the situation develops into disaster or into rescue. From the earlier perspective, we already predict that one or another of the one or other of these outcomes will be actual providing material for a later causal report using past tense categoricals. For example, someone did notice, and because of that, the people were saved, while the other outcome provides material for a past-oriented counterfactual conditional. Prospectively, we take it for granted that the background conditions are and will have been the same in both scenarios. Whichever turns out to be the non-actual scenario, it's still a scenario that rests on the actual background situation considered as actual. We don't, in advance, downgrade this background to the status of a mere supposition in relation to whichever train of salient events, we don't yet know from the prospective standpoint which that will be, will turn out not to take place. We don't, in advance, restrict actuality of the background so that it's only in place for the as yet unidentified set of salient happenings that's going to be the actual one. Correspondingly, from the retrospective standpoint, we are, I submit, likewise even-handed. Retrospectively, there is, of course, the major difference 
of our now knowing which sequence did take place and which did not, but we still view the counterfactual absence of neighbourly inter intervention and the counterfactually resulting disaster <laughs> as occurring under the same background conditions. The same not merely in description, but also in actuality, as the actual, uh, the same in actuality as the actual intervention and its result. And arguably, the even-handedness um, of the condition of actuality or not, um, uh, whether, uh, for both what happened and what didn't happen, the even-handedness applies to suppositions as well. That's to say, if for some reason we confine ourselves to merely supposing that the people would have been heavily asleep in the counterfactual event of no neighbourly intervention, then arguably we should likewise only suppose them to have been heavily sleeping in the actual event of the neighbours noticing smoke and getting help. That certainly seems strange, I mean a strange thing to say, given that we are in an epistemic position to assert, to assert that they were in fact sleeping. Once more, if we only suppose them uh, to have been sleeping when the neighbour acted, we can't any longer say that the neighbour saved them and that they were thereby extremely lucky. We can at best say that he would have saved them and they would have been thereby lucky, supposing that they had been heavily asleep. They might, after all, have been awake and have put out the fire themselves in good time or never have started it, in which case he wouldn't have saved them. It wouldn't be true that he saved them, rather. Okay, well, now the next section um, is about backtracking, an idea made famous, I think, um, in the recently anyway, by David Lewis, an uh, idea that it's something that we mustn't do. The idea of the background has been prominent, but a few more words are needed on what it involves. Relevant background includes laws of nature, general causal patterns, if they are somehow different from laws of nature, and particular concurrent or antecedent states of things, states of things, <coughs> events, processes that empirically ground, for example, the positive claim that the neighbor's <coughs> intervention saved the people's lives, along with the associated counterfactual that had he not intervened, they'd have perished. In our examples, the background also includes features that do not affect the bare bones of what occurs and it, or what occurred and its counterfactual alternative, but which make the, the outcome welcome or unwelcome to people concerned. The presence of rele relevant background is causally independent, that is, if the counterfactual is, as it were, to be successful. The presence of the background is causally independent of the occurrence or non-occurrence of the intervention event and its counterfactual alternative. For example, suppose that someone is furious that but for a train delay, she wouldn't have missed a vital exam. She stops this fuming once she learns that the power cut which caused the delay also knocked out the exam venue so that the exam has been postponed. In other words, the background conditions in fact 
developed in such a way that there was no exam for her to miss through lateness on the day in question. In general, our assessment of what would or would not have resulted and what the gains and losses would have been if some event E had happened or not is only as good, is only as, good as the assessment of what the background conditions were and were going to be whether E happened or not. Okay, now the problem posed by determinism is an old chestnut. Determinism says that given the laws of nature plus the antecedent state of the world, only one subsequent state is possible at every stage. It follows that if any given stage had been different in some particular, there must have been some prior difference in respect of some particular. But at whatever point we start this backward-looking counterfactual reasoning, we imply prior counterfactual differences right back to the beginning of the universe, even if it was only 9,000 years ago, which I, I read today. <laughs> um, it becomes apparent early on in the argument that for each prior stage, we can at best postulate the counterfactuality of a huge conjunction of factors many of which we are totally unable to identify. It must be that one or another of them would have been absent, but the, disjunct the disjunction covering this is indefinitely long. Many or most of its disjuncts are unknown to us. And in addition, the question of which disjunct at any given stage would have been different is, I believe, undecidable in principle. It also becomes apparent that the world being what it is, this world anyway being what it is, we are committed to a vast number of unknown counterfactual effects or outcomes resulting from postulated earlier differences and ramifying ever further in space and onward in time. It follows that we don't have the slightest reason to suppose that, for example, if a storm had not blown up when and where, that children's party was in fact held, the very conditions would have obtained that made it the case that a party was held just there that was a flop instead of a success. We don't know whether there would have been these or similar children, whether the would in the vast womb of time have developed such things as parties or even the human race itself. We don't know whether there would have been a physical world like this at all. Not only do we not know, we cannot begin to guess what would have been actual instead of what is. But in general, when people judge that if it hadn't been for the storm, the party in that same place with those same children and so on would have gone a whole lot better, they do so with what would generally be regarded as reasonable confidence based on ordinary experience. Yet ordinary experience cannot possibly justify confidence that even if the universe had been different in unguessable ways right from the very beginning, there would still have come into being these children, this party, these capacities for pleasure and disappointment, etc. Thus, if we judge the storm spoilt the party with a confidence which we regard and perhaps cannot help regarding as reasonable, in effect, we are simply setting aside the notion that the hypothetical non-occurrence of the storm 
entails hypothetical differences at every stage between now and the beginning of the universe. But in that case, we are setting aside determinism. We are not, or should not be, judging determinism false, for it's logically possible both that such a theory is true and that the storm spoilt this particular party. In other words, it's possible, logically, both that determinism is true and that the background obtained that made it the case that, on the occasion in question, with the storm, the children were bored and cross, and without it, they'd have had a good time instead. But this logical possibility does not alter the fact that we set determinism aside as lying beyond the horizon of what can be reasonably entertained, given that we see ourselves as making a reasonable judgment that the storm spoilt the party. Now, someone may object that it is downright illegitimate or even outrageous ever to let that unlimited backtracking get started. For, if we allow it, we render ourselves unable to evaluate the truth or correctness of a great many everyday, empirically founded, counterfactual conditionals. I agree, but the present contention is that putting a curb on backtracking comes with a price, namely refusal to treat determinism as having real epistemic possibility. Next section is called widening the target. I think that a parallel argument can be mounted against one kind of indeterminist picture of actual history. Indeterminism, at least as I'm treating it here, means that it is not the case for each, that for each stage of the universe, however we discriminate stages, only one next stage is nomologically possible. Maybe because some or all laws of nature or causal patterns are probabilistic rather than deterministic. Now, some philosophers view possible worlds, including this actual world, in terms of um, so-called world books, that is, maximal conjunctions of propositions such that each conjunction details an entire possible world, entire from beginning to end, a world that is, is actual if the conjunction is true. Now let's consider the world book of an indeterministic world, and let's assume that the book represents every detail of the world in question throughout its entire history. Thus, whether or not the world in question is actual or actualized, as we might prefer to say, it is fully determinate throughout or as a whole. That is, the contents of any given moment of its history are determinate at every moment. The contrast here is with a world whose contents, or some of them at any rate, only become determinate as time goes on, as things happen. Now let's suppose that our actual world is fully determinate in the way just indicated, and let's return to counterfactuals. It seems to me that even if this fully determinate world is indeterministic, we have much the same problem as before in deciding how things would have been if the neighbour hadn't intervened or if there hadn't been a storm. 
If the world, if the world in its spatio-temporal spread is actual or actualized as a fully determinate whole, then the hypothesis that the neighbor didn't intervene amounts to the hypothesis that this whole world was not actual or actualized. In other words, that the, the world book corresponding to it is false in some respect, in respect of some conjunct. But now, if we ask in the way that we do when framing ordinary counterfactual conditionals, how in that case would things have been instead? What difference did it make that he intervened, etc.? We are, I think, faced with essentially the same situation as before. If this whole world, the world as defined by its complete world book, had not been actual, no doubt some world or other would have been actual instead, but there is not the slightest reason for believing that what would have been actual instead is a world with just the features necessary for it to be true that there was that neighbor and that house containing those sleepers who would have died, and so on. Such a world, logically, and no doubt metaphysically, could have been actual instead. It's just that there is no reason at all to believe that it would have been actual instead. In short, these counterfactual conditionals are a problem for any view whereby world history is actual or actualized, or else not, as a whole, since we cannot know what, if anything, would have been actual or actualized instead of that whole. A deterministic history is holistic because nothing could have been different at any stage without incalculable, incalculable differences at every previous and no doubt subsequent also stage. And an indeterministic history is, if anything, even more all or nothing that is, again, holistic, if one assumes that its contents at every moment are, at every moment, fully determinate. So, according to what I'm arguing here, our practice with counterfactual conditionals like the ones, the examples that I gave, looks as if it presupposes a worldview in which a measure of indeterminism in the sequence of events combines with a measure of indeterminacy about the future at each stage. This lead, yields a version of the familiar, familiar, although in some quarters philosophically rather unloved, picture of world history becoming determinate bit by bit as the future becomes present. Incompleteness in respect of determinacy at any given time is one feature of a world that fits our practice with counterfactuals. The other feature is an indeterministic looseness such that not all world stages occur as the sole possible successors to what preceded them. Now I'm moving to the next section, which is the title of which is the local miracle, inverted commas, local miracle account. <clears throat> David Lewis proposed a determinism-compatible um, account of counterfactuals in terms of closest worlds, closest worlds in which the counterfactual antecedent is true. The content of these relevantly closest worlds includes a minor 
breach of natural law, at least a breach as judged by the nomological <coughs> standard of this world. Specifically, this local miracle is such that the uh, miracle has no, as it were, religious or um, uh, kind of theological connotation in this discussion. Um, this local miracle specifically is such that the antecedent event emerges from a past which almost up to the moment of its emergence exactly matches the actual past in terms of particulars. The overall account is designed to uphold our ordinary discriminations between acceptable and unacceptable counterfactual conditionals or true and false ones, if we want to use that, uh, that language. And in particular, the, the account is tailored so that it blocks unlimited backtracking. Now, on a very rough first impression, um, one which I'm sure everybody in this room is miles beyond, one might complain that this account simply asks us to pretend in a rather elaborate way that determinism is not true, even though in the context of, de of defending uh, compatibilism, we are assuming for the sake of, our, of argument that it is true. But that, of course, uh, may be an understandable reaction in some quarters, but that would be much too crude. It is, however, fair to, fair to note that the account does carry a cost. It postulates different systems of natural law for the actual world and the relevantly closest other worlds. Since the laws of the world would seem to be overwhelming candidates for inclusion among background conditions of any salient particulars of that world, the account entails abandoning one or another natural assumption. Either one, the prospective standpoint assumption that background con conditions are and are going to be the same either way, whether or not the neighbour calls the fire brigade, or two, the assumption that retrospective counterfactuals inherit that prospective feature unchanged except for matters of tense and mood. Since the device of a closest world, closest world's local miracle does incur this cost, the cost of sacrificing one or other of those natural assumptions, and since the device is not, as far as I can see, an independently attractive postulate, it's fair to ask whether it's more than an ad hoc measure to save determinism from triggering the backtracking that would destroy the rational basis of many everyday counterfactual judgments. And if this is not an unfair uh, suspicion, the suspicion namely that the miracle, so-called, is ad hoc, then the debate, the general debate about compatibilism, etc., has surely reached a point where anyone who in entertains any sympathy, it need not be endorsement, but just as it were sympathy, for universal macro-determinism, whether or not they finally endorse it, ought to step forward to show why this theory is so worthwhile that one should seriously consider buying it today 
even at significant cost. Perhaps the thought is that empirical science may be going to show that universal macro determinism is our best theory, so we had better prepare ourselves by constructing analyses that uphold its compatibility with everything we hold dear. However, it's not at all clear whether empirical science could ever show any such thing, namely that universal macro-determinism is our best theory. If, moreover, the task of upholding compatibilism were allowed to re recede in importance, we could then channel the energies saved into fuller exploration of the theoretical potential of an unapologetic and far from panicky macro indeterminism. Lewis, David Lewis, thought of possible worlds, whether deterministic or not, as fully determinate in the sense discussed in the previous section. This entails, I think, that a closest world's local miracle account is vulnerable, except on an assumption to be mentioned in a moment, to the type of objection that I've raised. Although the past in the closest worlds, once we get back beyond the miracle, exactly matches the actual past, we still have no reason to hold that if, for instance, it hadn't been the case that the neighbour smelt smoke, etc., we have no still have no reason to hold that one of those closest worlds would have been actual instead of our actual history. As before, we have absolutely no idea what sort of entirely determinate world would have been actual instead of this one. Thus, we are not in a position to say that but for the neighbour's alertness, the people in the house would have perished instead of surviving, nor, there, nor therefore are we in a position to say that his alertness saved them. However, Lewis himself is not open to this objection. Why? Because he would have rejected the whole idea that one world could be actual instead of another, or rather than another. <clears throat> this follows from his famous extreme realism about possible worlds, according to which the phrase, the actual world, is purely indexical so that each possible world is actual from the point of view of itself, and that's the end of the story. Uh, there is no world that is absolutely the uniquely actual one. Hence, it's nonsense to speak of one world being actual instead of some other, other or others. Lewis's extreme modal realism is the assumption that blocks the objection. But most philosophers reject extreme modal realism. In general, the pros and cons of that debate lie well beyond the topic of this paper. But it's interesting to note that one reason for embracing extreme modal realism might be that it enables philosophers to remain on compatibilist terms with determinism. Yet, as before, we may now feel that it's time someone explained exactly what determinism these days has going for it that would justify such a steep philosophical price. 
It's not enough to repeat what we all know, namely that determinism has a hoary history and has been endorsed by some very great previous philosophers. Final section, headed Ways with Counterfactuals. Throughout, I've spoken of a loss-or-gain-oriented use of counterfactual conditionals about particulars. This is because there is surely a distinct use of such conditionals, one which I'll just simply call theoretical, where the attention is not on how the counterfactual outcome would or might have affected anyone for good or ill. The focus in these theoretical ones is purely on the nexus of antecedent to consequent, regardless of whether the result or non-result would have been to anyone's advantage or detriment. One can note that if that match had been struck, it would have ignited, with emphasis purely on the point that if something else, for example, a metal pin, had been scratched on the matchbox, there would have been no ignition. One can reckon, a different example, that if the oil tank had been filled last month, it wouldn't be running low today, with emphasis purely on the specific rate of con consumption. The statement that if John had lifted this dumbbell, he would have injured his back, may simply be meant to underline a difference between the strength of someone with John's physique and that of a stronger or fitter person, or a difference between the weight of this dumbbell and another. In the theoretical use, we are not primarily thinking of ways in which the counterfactual events, had they occurred, would have contributed to the ongoing history of the world. We're not thinking about them as events whose occurrence, had they occurred, would have been embedded in a particular history of the world stretching forward into the future and back into the past. We're thinking um, of these, uh, these, these counterfactual uh, nexuses, we're thinking of them as indicative of the natures of the objects or processes involved or of the causal connection uh, between them. Thus, in saying or thinking, if that match had been struck, it would have ignited we may be attending to striking that match as opposed, or striking that match, <coughs> emphasis, as opposed to striking a pin, or to striking it as opposed to breaking it into two pieces, or to its igniting rather than say, <clears throat> rather than, for example, melting. We're not focusing on what difference it would have made to the surrounding situation if that particular match had ignited at time t e.g. on whether it would have got a pleasant hearth fire going or would have caused an explosion because gasoline vapour was present. So, although this counterfactual conditional, the one about this match, is about concrete particulars, in theoretical use, one abstracts from the context in order to make, about, make a point about the objects, processes and relations represented within the conditional. Obviously, the conditional is true or correct in virtue of certain concurrent background conditions, but the abstract nature of its theoretical use 
is such that we systematically, we systematically ignore earlier antecedents, just as we ignore wider and subsequent consequences. Thus, we screen out questions about how it came about that the match wasn't struck at or just before time t. As far as we are concerned, the world complete with match and so on might as well have been created a few seconds before t. In other words, questions that trigger backtracking don't arise, nor do questions about wider and subsequent differences made by the matches not igniting, hence by its having remained unstruck. As for the fact itself of the unstruck matches staying unignited rather than igniting, we have, I submit, very little interest in this. That is, we take it for granted, we take for granted, as it were, the difference between its remaining unignited rather than igniting. Um, we're, we, we're not really interested in that by comparison with the way we're interested in the theoretical mode in the, in the fact that what it signally didn't do, because it wasn't struck, was ignite rather than, for example, melt. Contrast this with the house fire case where, in practical mode, we are all hung up on the difference between the people surviving versus their perishing, and therefore on the difference between the neighbours having taken action and his not having done so. This is because the practical concern is bound up with seeing the events or non-events as historically situated and as belonging in, one, in, the in the biographical narrative, if you like, of anyone believed to be affected. And this is also why here we are not free to refuse to backtrack if it seems to us that the counterfactual antecedent is such that had it been actually true, the past must have been relevantly and signally different. different. I also suspect that in the theoretical use, it makes little difference if we merely suppose the background conditions to have obtained in both actual and counterfactual scenarios. In suppositional mode, we get Quote, if the conditions were the same, then if the match had been struck, it would have ignited. That is, the conditional that connects match struck and match igniting is a, con is a, conditional, um, is a conditional conditional, as distinct from a plain categorical conditional. Now, it's not at all clear that this difference affects the information conveyed when we're talking theoretically, or not clear that it affects our interest in that information, if what concerns us is match struck versus pin struck, or match struck versus broken in two, or match igniting versus melting. Contrast yet again the practical use where the riveting thought is that actual conditions were such that if the neighbour hadn't stepped in, the people would have died, period. How starkly different from the thought that if such conditions had obtained, the people would have died 
if the neighbour hadn't stepped in. In one case, assuming that we wish the people well, we, like them, are thankful for the difference that the neighbour made. In the other case, the suppositional case, we form at most what Hume called a cool and indolent judgment of the understanding that we would have been thankful for the difference that he would have made. But the main point is that backtracking, hence the unlimited backtracking precipitated by determinism, only and by other holistic worldviews, only targets actualities, unlimited backtracking only targets actualities regarded categorically as having obtained period. Counterfactuals in theoretical use are therefore out of danger if this use as can, as I believe it can, dispense with categoricity. <clears throat> if philosophers overlook our different ways with counterfactuals, the topic becomes more slippery even than nature made it. Focusing just on the theoretical use gives easy assurance that determinism introduces no problem. Within limits, this is true that determinism introduces no problem, since that use emerges as immune to pernicious backtracking. Presumably, presumably, however, the practical use is what controls examples that come to mind when philosophers worry over whether they can, uh, whether they can rationally believe in determinism along with believing in moral agency and freedom. Here, the old chestnut hasn't been cracked. <clears throat>